Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Road to Know Her podcast. This is a brand new podcast aimed to educate, inform, and empower women so we can take control of our health and well-being. I'm Emmy. And I'm Alex. And we're trying to fill in the gaps of knowledge when it comes to our bodies and well-being. And each week, we'll sit down with leading experts in the field of women's health to discuss a wide range of topics, including nutrition, contraception, fertility, and everything in between. So let's jump in. Hey, Emmy. Hey, Alex. How are you doing? Um, all good, thanks. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. I'm good. How's your body this week? How's it feeling? It's feeling good. I'm off to play netball after this, which is really nice. exciting. Nice. And I think I'm at day nine of my cycle, so I'm feeling quite energised. Love good. it. Love it. How about you? Yeah, I'm feeling pretty good. I am starting my period in about five days right on my f- second day of holiday which I am not very happy about anyway we'll keep this intro super short as this conversation in our opinion is just really fantastic one of the reasons we started this podcast was because of the lack of education and help for women when it comes to knowing and understanding their bodies and I think we're both well aware that this lack of knowledge often comes from the fact that medicine and research doesn't even test on or know women's bodies I mean there was that thing recently wasn't it that for the first time ever, period pads was tested on blood, not water, about three months ago. Mad. So there's really no research. I think medical journals even have the male anatomy as default. And this has led to a huge gender health gap where women's pain and healthcare issues are more frequent, but so often ignored, dismissed and understood. I know that I've definitely been there. I've been gone to a doctor. They haven't wanted to really find out what what's wrong with me or join the dots up or really listen to me I think it's something that we can all identify with yeah 100% I can identify with it and so many of my friends as well I think we've all been in that situation where we're taught that our pain is just something that we have to endure rather than actually go to a doctor and find out what is going on and have the confidence to really push for it and advocate for ourselves and that's why we're so lucky to have our guest today As when it comes to the gender healthcare gap, Sarah Graham literally wrote the book on this. She is a health journalist and founder of the blog Hysterical Women, a feminist blog which explores sexism in women's health. And from this, her book Rebel Bodies was born. 
Rebel Bodies is an inclusive and empowering manifesto for change in women's healthcare. It explores a systemic and deep-rooted sexism within medicine, merging research and data points with real stories of gaslighting, misdiagnosis and misunderstanding within the healthcare system. We loved that this book also offers actionable advice and ways for women to advocate for ourselves and others and to get the diagnosis and treatment that we really need. And I think we're probably going to split this episode into two because the conversation ended up lasting well over an hour and a half and we were so aware that we needed to wrap it up. But I was just finding it so intriguing. I and I could have honestly spoken to her for another two hours. There were so many things that I wish. I came away from the interview thinking, God, there are about 100 questions that I still want to ask her. 100%. I think maybe we have to get her on for season two. Yeah, totally. And I think... That's the thing. First of all, she's a very warm and engaging person. Mm. So you could just talk to her forever. But also she, what I really loved about the book is it's so inclusive. So it covers all sorts of healthcare inequality from the inequality in women's healthcare, but then you have LGBTQ plus individuals, trans healthcare, uh, disability healthcare. She covers everything. And basically I felt really empowered because I recognize that the more we fight for everybody's rights and voices, then the more it lifts everybody up. A hundred percent. I think we're all in it together. And it's just understanding that these inequalities are there. And I think for me, it was having the stats behind it. So it's not just all in your head. And this is something that you've just personally experienced. It's like the stats are there. They're backing this information up and it made me feel way more empowered to go to the doctor and be like, I actually, I need to see someone and I need to understand what is going on. Pain is not normal. And it also ties perfectly into all the different guests we've had. So we had Dr. Aziza Sese when she was saying pain is not normal during sex, during your periods, like boobs, they shouldn't be painful when you're running. All of these things all tie in perfectly into this episode, I think. Totally. I think this episode has really put a bit of a fire in my belly. Mm. And I've found when talking to people in different situations, whether it's talking about the healthcare and getting really, the healthcare system and getting really fired up that it is unequal and the research isn't there. Or for instance, I went to go get laser on my bikini area. I don't know why I'm now just saying that, but <laughs> I went to go get IPL and the person doing, the woman doing my IPL was talking about how she's got lots of autoimmune di- diseases and doctors won't listen to her her and she's had this huge thing on her leg God. for months. And I was like, you know that you can get a second opinion and you can do this and you need to fight for it. And this is all that, that had all come from this episode because it was so empowering. And Sarah Graham really teaches us to advocate for ourselves and push for second opinions, better responses, how yeah. to work the complaint system within the NHS. And it's not about blaming the NHS. It's just about seeing inequalities in the system rather yeah. than people. And if anything, I think it's almost aiding doctors as well if we're equipped if we know and understand our bodies and we can come in use the right terms for our bodies understand what is right and what's not normal then we can actually help them get to a diagnosis better and I never really thought of it in that way before I was always like oh god I don't want to be the annoying person who's asking loads of questions or coming in with prior knowledge but actually it is helpful for them it it speeds up the process that's such a good point I always felt like such a teacher's pet coming in with a list being like I've done my homework these are my symptoms I think it's this but actually that can be extremely useful to someone coming in and just not being like I feel like this but I don't know why and I don't know how often and all of that exactly we come in and say on my first of the month check yeah my boobs are feeling different feel on the first you feel on the first (laughs) my vulva's looking a bit different they're gonna be like great everything's changing they're gonna be like emmy you're pregnant (laughs) (laughs) 
Okay, All right, there's so much to get through. I feel like we need to jump into it. Yeah, okay, great. Just to start off, what led you to writing the book in the first place? Gosh, um, for me, I suppose it, it was kind of a culmination of uh, the work I've been doing as a journalist over the last sort of five years um, and probably the real kind of catalyst for actually getting around to writing the book was lockdown. Um, so I've been working as a freelance journalist for about 10 years and as I say the last kind of five or so years in particular I've been really focusing in on women's health and I was hearing a lot of very similar stories from lots of different women that I was interviewing um, and I noticed that that was happening kind of across the board so whether I was writing about chronic illnesses um, or endometriosis or the menopause or mental health I was hearing you know things like I felt like I was dismissed like my doctors didn't take me seriously um, and women who felt really isolated by that and who had been sent away with no solutions, no diagnosis, no treatment, um, because effectively their, their doctor told them it was all in their head or it was just their hormones or it was normal. Um, and so I felt really frustrated by that, you know, as a woman, as a feminist, I, I felt like, what's going on here? And I was really struck by that thing that they all said, which was that they felt very alone. They felt like it was just them, that it was it, it was a, a problem with them, that they were weak. They weren't coping as well as other people do. And so I started uh, my blog initially, Hysterical Women, kind of to prove a point to all of these women that they weren't alone, that there was something bigger going on. Um, and I'd always kind of had in the back of my mind that there might be a book in it somewhere. I think most journalists think some always in, in the back of their mind that there's maybe a book in them. Um, and I just never got around to doing anything about it really until the pandemic hit. And then suddenly it felt like such a perfect opportunity. You know, health was so much kind of at the forefront of everybody's mind. And the pandemic was also really highlighting some of the inequalities um, that, that were coming through. Um, so that was, that for me was the kind of kick up the bum really to get on with it and go, okay, freelance work's a bit weird right now. Let's get that book proposal down and um, and actually get this book out there in the world. That's fantastic. I think it's really a really good point what you said about COVID highlighting those inequalities because I get the sense from just speaking to people that a lot of women's, typically women's issues and healthcare issues tend to be seen as less urgent because yeah. a lot of the time they're long-term conditions that nobody can get to the bottom of so they are just sort of seen as less urgent rather than a man who goes to the doctor for the first time in ages and then that's something high priority because they don't go to the doctor. Yeah absolutely and I think you know you can see that in the statistics that the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists published last last year no it must have been the year before because it was before the book came out um where they found that gynecology waiting lists had increased by 60 percent since the pandemic and that was the biggest increase of any specialty so the the then president of the rcog dr edward morris said that the reason he thought that that was was because doctors dismiss women's health issues as 
benign, you know, they're not cancerous, most of them, they're not life-threatening. Um, and so they're seen as actually not that important. But actually, the impact on, on women's quality of life is huge. Um, and so, yeah, I think absolutely that kind of normalization, the dismissal of things that affect huge, huge numbers of the population, um, but just aren't seen as urgent. And one thing, because in the book, you talk a lot about this pain gap. And I know so many women who have grown up with endometriosis, and it's just almost been normalized and painful periods, PMS, all of these different things. Can you explain? delve into that pain gap a little bit more and explain how you got all this research and what the research is showing you. Yeah, absolutely. So there's some really interesting research going back kind of 20 odd years, showing that um, there are discrepancies in the way that women's pain is perceived by doctors. So a man and a woman could go to A&E, for example, with the exact same amount of pain but the man's pain will, will be perceived as worse. They will, you know, women are kept waiting longer in A&E. They're less likely to be given the heavy duty painkillers. They're more likely to be given anti-anxiety medication, sedatives, that, that kind of thing. Um, you know, so there is this really big discrepancy that's been around and that actually has been noted for quite some time. Um, but, um, yeah, and, and I think, as you say, that exists kind of the whole way through our lives. You know, there's this idea that as women, you know, if you're born with a uterus, it's almost kind of your lot to suffer. You know, periods are supposed to be painful. Childbirth is supposed to be agonizing. You know, if you get ripped open and are completely incontinent after childbirth, that's just the price you pay for motherhood. And menopause is supposed to be awful. And, and all, all the way through these different life stages, there's this idea that you just have to kind of grit your teeth and get on with it because it's what being a woman is all about. Um, and I think we internalise that as well. You know, the number of women, as I said, who, who talk about, oh, I thought it was just me being too weak and everybody else copes and I'm not. Um, whereas, you know, there just isn't that recognition. Actually, all of these experiences exist on a spectrum and some level of period pain is normal. But if it's having that kind of debilitating impact on your life where you can't go to school, you can't go to work, you know, you're, or it's affecting things like fertility or your sex life or, or whatever, that's not normal, you know. And, um, and I think medicine needs to get better at, at recognising that. Definitely. And as well as, it, as seeing it as the cost of having a uterus, you also write about pain not being believed. And... That's something that I can definitely resonate with, having to really advocate for yourself in a doctor's surgery and at a hospital when you're asking for pain medication. But I didn't really think of it as a whole societal issue until I read about it in your book. So you, when you were collecting all these stories, what was a kind of aha moment when you realised this isn't just a load of individual experiences, this is a huge societal issue that we are not seen as the authority on our own bodies and our own pain? I'm not sure there necessarily was one single aha moment. I think as I started collecting all of the stories in, in the blog, it just became more and more obvious to me um, how big the problem was, you know. And I was reading, obviously, research papers, um, looking into to studies that things like the, the waiting times in A&E, the um, use of pain relief, things like... Um, 
the way that women and men with chronic pain, for example, are treated. Um, so yeah, I, would, I wouldn't say there was necessarily one single moment. It was really a kind of cumulative effect of just like, oh my God, this is such a huge problem. Mm. And when we look at medical people, doctors, nurses, they're all good people. And I, I, I don't think that there's sort of misogyny across the whole medical system. So what do you think it is that's making these wait times be longer? Is there a systematic issue that's going on below the surface that people aren't consciously aware of? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I say in the book, one of the things that I always want to be really clear about is that, you know, there are absolutely individuals who are misogynistic within medicine as there are in every single industry. Um, you know, and I talk about some of the really awful things that some doctors have said to some women. But, you know, the, as you say, the, the bigger picture is is these systemic issues. And I think there are kind of three main factors, really. One is is to do with knowledge and the fact that, you know, we have less research when it comes to conditions that disproportionately affect women. We know less about how things like women's menstrual cycles impact on other conditions, impact on you know the, the drugs that they take and, and all, all of these different things. So we know less about women's bodies and the things that can go wrong with them. Um, and that, that's, a, that's a big issue. Um, the male body is still very much taught as kind of the default in medical school. Um, it's very much viewed as the default when when we're looking at kind of clinical trials and, and those sort of sorts of things. And although that is improving, you know, there were decades where women were excluded from clinical trials. And that has had a big impact. You know, we ha- so we have this huge kind of backlog in terms of knowledge and research where there's just so much catching up to do. And that puts doctors at a disadvantage to some extent because um, they don't have the knowledge to adequately treat women necessarily. Um, And it obviously also puts patients at a disadvantage. And then I think we also, in the context of NHS, have a capacity issue where we know that resources are really tight, staff satisfaction, staff morale is an absolute all-time low. and doctors and nurses and, and midwives are under huge, huge amounts of pressure. Um, services are really restricted. And I think, you know, when you think about the fact that women are the biggest users of, of health and social care, that inevitably means we are the ones who are hit hardest by those resourcing issues. It also means that when doctors are under those those time restraints and uh, and those pressures, they are more likely to rely on stereotypes, on biases, on this kind of, one of the doctors I spoke to described it as mental shortcuts because you have to make quick snap decisions. And so you fall back on on those lazy stereotypes. And I think that that's kind of where the third issue comes in, which is to do with trust, you know, and all of these ideas that are wrapped up in hysteria, you know, this idea that women are kind of enthralled to our bodies and our hormones and and that we can't be trusted. We're emotional. We're irrational. We don't know what's going on in our own bodies. We can't be trusted to make informed choices about our treatments. And that really sort of paternalistic attitude that, that still kind of seems to seep into medicine. I think it's it's kind of a combination of all these three, which is really difficult to untangle and, and unpick. Yeah, that's so interesting about the time constraints as well, because I know that the NHS is under so much pressure. But because there's not enough research around things, I think in your book you speak about the difference in research in erectile dysfunction and PMS. 
And if you don't have time, you're in and out quickly and actually don't have any research to fall back on to say, oh, actually, we do know quite a lot about this. We know a lot about PMS. Come in. I can get through this quite quickly because I've got the research to back it up and make those appointments much quicker. That's such an interesting. Can you can you talk about that, um, the research side between erectile dysfunction and PMS? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the um, stats that I quote in the book is that there is uh, five times more research into erectile dysfunction, which affects 19% of men uh, compared to PMS, which affects 90% of women. Um, And I think, you know, as with so many of the issues that I talk about in the book, it really comes down to what is prioritised, what is seen as important, who is seen as important, you know, who's pleasure and sexual function is seen as important i talk about this a lot in in the sexual health book the fact that you know even doctors who are sexual health specialists haven't been taught about the clitoris haven't been taught about sexual pleasure you know that is not seen as an important part of sexual health whereas for men it very much is um you know so i think that that is a huge discrepancy um one of the gynecologists that i interviewed Um, had this amazing quote which I actually used as the title for that chapter where she said you know as a doctor you are taught to think about the vagina in terms of can you get a penis in and can you get a baby out and that tally but it tallies so much with what so many of the women I spoke to said you know if you know their vaginal issues were affecting their husband's sex life suddenly that was a much bigger problem if their reproductive health issues like endometriosis pcos was affecting their fertility and their ability to conceive then suddenly it became a priority but actually if it was just you know sex is painful or i can't orgasm it was sort of like "Mm, what do you want us to do about it like that's not a medical problem um you know so i think but but you know again it comes up in so many other areas of healthcare where you know and it's partly to do with who is funding the research it part it's partly to do with who is doing the research and and the areas that they're interested in but there is such a kind of clear dividing line in terms of what is seen as important and worthy of research versus what's seen as actually we don't need to bother too much about that it's it's not a big deal Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. 
juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. That's so true. And I always think about the, when you said about the fertility, loads of my friends have had loads of pain, but it's only raised as an issue when they're now worrying about getting pregnant. And it puts so much pressure on your body to suddenly be in this situation where you're now dealing with fertility issues rather than dealing with those issues earlier on when it was maybe just pain or uncomfort but they weren't really raised as issues then until they got to that stage it's so scary mm-hmm. and it's all tied to again it's those lazy stereotypes of what a man is meant to be or what a woman is meant to be and it's so easy to think that a man's sexual pleasure is so it, it's what it means to be masculine it's what makes a guy and you know you see all these popular culture references of somebody who's lost the ability to get an erection and it's like embarrassing and it's all of that whereas a woman if Sex, her sexual pleasure is not tied to her femininity and if it was then she would be a slut or promiscuous and all these things and it yeah it just makes so much sense that it goes back to lazy stereotypes and I think those stereotypes also mean it also determines what a doctor's comfortable talking about yeah. because they're not going to be comfortable talking with a woman about how she wants to go and have sex because you do have those stereotypes of her being promiscuous and this is what I absolutely loved about the book is it just takes these like smaller experiences I guess and it just weaves them into this whole societal issue and experience and I love the bit you touched on as well about the history so starting with um I think it was it the Roman the ancient Egyptians and then it goes to the wandering womb idea from the Greeks of hysteria and I just it, it's fascinating I think it's so smart how you've managed to get these experiences and tie them into these sort of very Uh, digestible threads which I think really really makes sense thank you yeah I mean I really wanted to put all of these experiences into context I I very much felt that although the blog kind of had its own power it was very much a collection of stories presented without context and so for me it was really important to go okay why is this happening why you know who are the people being affected and how do different you know intersectional experiences impact on that but also you know what's the other side of it how does the structure of the NHS and how does you know the gaps in research impact on doctors and and those who are who are trying to give the care so I really wanted it to give a much more kind of nuanced and comprehensive perspective on on things absolutely and i and when talking about intersectionality i i really love that you looked at it from a very wide perspective and one thing that i think i knew a little bit about before but was transgender healthcare but i knew about it very much in terms in relation to gender affirming care and i didn't think about it in terms of other healthcare so just if you know you've got a really bad cough or something um and to try and shine a bit of a light on this, would you be able to talk a little bit about that so our listeners can be, be a little bit more aware as well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is something that I find really fascinating. And it was so important to me that it was in the book. And it, it was, you know, it was part of the reason why the book is called Rebel Bodies and Not Hysterical Women, because I didn't want it to focus exclusively on women. I wanted there to be 
that more holistic look at what the gender health gap actually means. Um, you know, and, and very much like you, actually, I was aware of problems accessing gender affirming care is very much outside of my expertise. And it's not something that was kind of within the scope of the book. But what I was really struck by was learning about this phenomenon that's known as trans broken arm syndrome. And it was coined um, a few years ago by a trans person. And effectively, it describes um, experiences that trans people have when they're going to the doctor about a general health condition, something that could affect any of us, tonsillitis, broken arm, you know, you name it. Um, and either their doctor says, oh, it's because you're trans or oh, it's because of your hormone treatment or they just completely freak out and go, oh, I don't know how to deal with trans people. You need to go and see your gender specialist. And they're like, well, my gender specialist isn't really there to treat tonsillitis or a broken arm. Like that's not that's not what their job is. You know, so, for example, some, one of the um, trans guys that I spoke to um, for the book spoke about you know something super innocuous he'd got a cut on his hand which had got infected it just needed a really straightforward course of antibiotics to prevent the infection getting any worse Um, but his GP was like oh I need to speak to your gender specialist because I don't know how it will interact with your testosterone and he was like well if a cis man who has those levels of testosterone in his body naturally came to you needing antibiotics would you be like oh i'm not sure if it's okay with your testosterone or would you just give him the antibiotics you know and so it's it's really silly things like that where you think actually a lot of it comes from ignorance and i think fear of getting it wrong uh, or messing up um but actually that, you know, that such a, has such a huge impact um you know because you know in his case he could have gone away and it had got worse and you know may have ended up needing to be hospitalized with the result with this infection so you know that I think for me was a really kind of striking uh comparison to some of the experiences that that cis women have you know a lot of the trans people I spoke to talked about um you know feeling that they weren't believed or that they were dismissed that they were ridiculed that they were kind of sent away without getting the answers that they needed and a lot of the a lot of the experiences were very specific to their transness you know things like not being prescribed something because they were on her hormonal medication but actually a lot of them were were quite similar to the experiences that cis women were were describing as well and then looking ahead into the future how do you think things like these problems will be solved is it is it on the nhs to put more funding into research to educate people better i guess it's a combination of a lot of different things but if you could sort of point out the fundamental ones that you think are the most important right now yeah absolutely so i think for me there are kind of three uh sort of r's if you like so research and 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 i mean that kind of in the in the broadest possible sense in in terms of knowledge we need the research to be caught up but we need that then to filter down into education whether that is medical schools or whether that's kind of continuing education um and that there is just a huge huge amount of work to be done there and it needs to be funded um you know it ultimately it all comes down to money uh the second r i think is is reflection which is you know on doctors on healthcare professionals to reflect on their own practice their biases but i think medical schools need to be instilling this idea very early on you know 
to teach them about the history of medicine, the, the sexism, the racism, the transphobia, and, and all of these different biases that are, are kind of built in to the medical system and teaching them to reflect on them and to challenge them and unpick them and to just really think about that in their own practice. Because I think, you know, they're so busy. They have so much on their plates. It's They don't have time often to, to sit and go you know to really reflect on these things so I think that is something that really needs to be there kind of from the ground up in, in terms of education and then the third one as you say is is resources and I really think you know not even just in terms of women's health but in terms of the NHS as a whole we know that it is absolutely on its knees we need the government to invest seriously um, in workforce above all you know if we don't have gps and midwives you know those two groups in particular are just like we're hemorrhaging them um and you know i think one positive in the last few years has been the publication of the women's health strategy which i think um for me really has been kind of the most powerful evidence of that kind of gender health gap revolution that I talk about in the book, the activism, the advocacy that has has been building over the last five years. Because, you know, I think when I was first writing about these issues, the government didn't care. I'm not convinced they care now, but they they've been forced to to be to show that they're doing something, that they're listening, that they're that you know they're um, taking the issue seriously. It's been put on the political agenda as a result of that advocacy. Um, so I think that is really important, but we need we need it to be backed up with funding. And that's where I think there are still some really big holes um, in terms of the strategy. For sure. And I think that that in some ways that was a, quite a heartening aspect of the book for me, seeing the, all the support from local communities and those that have suffered from the gender health gap themselves, um, seeing all the different community pages or charity pages it's really wonderful but you're so right it does need to be formalized and actually then educate and all reflection and all the things you said I very much again resonate with it so I during my 20s I just had so many health different issues and I and I was trying to say to my doctor there's definitely something going on here and they just sent me to all different specialists and I wanted a holistic view at it finally found out last year that I have hypermobile LS Danos and I was like oh okay right that makes so much sense but now it's got to that point the only support I have to re- I can rely on are community groups and the www.lsdanos page and that's where I get all my information from they basically said the doctor said you've got this and then there was no aftercare at all so yeah it's one of those things where those advocacy groups and those activism groups are really wonderful and doing such an incredible job but it definitely needs to be formalized by funding and research and all those things yeah no absolutely I, I actually just wrote a really interesting uh, article about Ellis Danlos syndrome and all the kind of other conditions that that really commonly coexist alongside it so um, I'll send you the link later but yeah as you say it is it is one of those things where um, there is so much onus on patients to do it themselves and that is something that I kind of I say it in the book and I feel like I've been banging on about it in every single one of these podcasts and events and talks that I've done is I really don't want people to go away from the book feeling like it's all on them to fix this because it shouldn't be like it should not be up to us to fix this problem and we you know we can't as patients we can't fix it on our own um you know I think what patient advocates 
can do and have done really successfully is to get this on the political agenda but there needs to be more we can't just rely on charities and individuals and you know particularly like people who are seriously ill and struggling with their own health problems and at the same time they're out there supporting other people in Facebook or Instagram communities and sharing information sharing resources you know it it shouldn't have to be like that it's wonderful that it is um absolutely but i think you know that this whole idea of the big society that, that david cameron came up with in, in the 2010s you know this idea that we should just depend on charities and individuals to to do the stuff that actually the government should be doing the state should be providing that care absolutely um, so. i forgot about that yeah <laughs> that was kind of <laughs> A lot has happened in politics yeah. since David Cameron. <laughs> also, we're paying for it, aren't we? We're paying yeah, for it through our taxes. Absolutely. So why are we not getting the care? And everyone needs to be an advocate for themselves these days. You have to do the research yourself and you have to go and present the sy- symptoms. And I was thinking that that's, you can only really do that if you have the privilege. And that's a time privilege because I was thinking if I was a working mother and or I was looking after elderly parents, I wouldn't have the time to sit there and Google all my symptoms and figure what's wrong with me. And then it's an education privilege and it's a language privilege, being able to communicate in the right language as well. And I just think this, it puts so many people at such a disadvantage, the fact that we have to be our own advocates. It's so incredibly frustrating. But saying that, in your book, you do offer some really good tips for people who need to advocate for themselves. So would you be able to help our listeners understand what they can do to just help speak about their issues and get the treatment that they really need? Yeah, I mean, I think the kind of fundamental thing really is understanding the way the system works and how to to sort of navigate that and, and work with the system as it is, because the system is not in any way perfect. Um, you know, every GP that I've ever spoken to says a 10 minute appointment isn't long enough for and like anything even remotely complex it's just not long enough to get a full case history and really kind of unpick what's going on so there are things you can do to make life as easy as possible for your gp um things like tracking symptoms keeping a symptom diary um if it's anything kind of period related cycle tracking so you know how long your cycles are what symptoms you get on which particular days um and really kind of having almost a kind of bullet point list of the things you want to you know it helps you as well to make sure that you don't forget under pressure but it also helps to give them a, a bit more of a picture um, I think if you've got specific concerns based on research that you've done, you know, it's it's worth asking, can I be t- tested for this? Can I be referred to such and such specialist? Is it worth looking at this? Why do you think it's not that? Um, so these are kind of questions to, to keep in mind. And I think ultimately the, the really big thing for me is remembering that the knowledge you have as a patient is complementary to the knowledge of, of your doctor. Um, so, so often we kind of think that the doctor knows best and they're the one with the years and years of training and the textbook knowledge and, you know, that, that they know everything there is to know, but actually you're the only person that knows your body as intimately and as well as, as you do. Um, and that knowledge is important. You know, you know, if something feels different, you know, if something's changed from what's normal, if something feels wrong, you know, trust that kind of gut instinct 
Um, and, and remember that you can ask for a second opinion. You can ask to take somebody with you, you know, whether they're just there as kind of moral support or to hold your hand or if, you know, whether you actually want them to speak up and advocate for you if, if you feel you're not being listened to. Um, so, yeah, so I, as much as I feel that actually the onus shouldn't be on patients equally, I did want to give those kind of practical tips. Um, so the end of each chapter has a, a resources section and and that felt like kind of an important way just to kind of help people to navigate a system that actually isn't isn't set up in our favor I really like that because every time I go to the doctor I'm always so scared to say this is my cycle tracking this is the symptoms I've got because I always feel really high maintenance and actually it's so funny that that's built in in you as a woman be like I don't want to be too over the top, but you're right. They've got 10 minutes to get in and out of there. They want as much information as possible. And it's really lovely to hear that. And I'm really excited. Next time I go to the doctor, I'm going to be like, here are all my notes. <laughs> totally. <laughs> totally. And actually the way that that GPs now are taught, a, a GP told me this when I was interviewing her for the book. So the, the way that they are taught is to consider... Um, it's called the ICE model. So they consider your ideas, concerns and expectations. So actually, that's what they want to hear. They want to hear your ideas about what it might be. They want to hear your concerns. So what impact is it having on your everyday life? And they want to know what do you want to get out of this consultation? Is it a test? Is it a referral? Is it a particular medication? You know, what what is it that you're going there wanting to do? So actually, if you can prepare that in advance, you know, as you say, we're so kind of socialized to not make a fuss and, you know, but yeah, it, 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 it does help. I think preparation is so key because I also panic when I get in there and I tend to forget everything I've just thought about. Yes. And especially if they are dismissing me, I definitely, as a bit of a people pleaser, also I'm like, okay, don't worry, you're probably right. So I think actually preparing what you're going to say exactly before, even going over it a few times in your head. Yeah. And I usually have a list of symptoms on my phone as well. I think that just really helps you to remember to take a breath and it's fine. You can you can fight, sort of fight back, I guess, in yeah. a way. Because it's so, sometimes they rush you out of the room so much, you kind of come out of it and you think, what what just happened in there? I don't even, I feel like I said two words and now I've been rushed out. It's totally not what I want. Yeah. And actually, you know, knowing that you're, you know, you're entitled to ask them to justify things. So, mm. as you know, as I said, if they say, oh no, I don't think it's that. Okay, can you explain why you don't think it's that? Because there might be a really good reason, but you deserve to know what that reason is so that, you know, you can put your mind at ease or so that you can go and seek a second opinion if you're, if you're not satisfied by that. Um, you know, and equally, if they refuse something, if they refuse a particular test, if they refuse to refer, you can ask for it to be recorded in your medical notes that they've refused that. Um, and actually asking them to record it apparently is quite a good way sometimes to get them to change their mind. Wow, so, this is such um, good advice. But yeah, but, and, and these, you know, by and large are all tips that I've picked up either from doctors or from patient advocates who have found these things out for themselves over the years by, you know, one woman described um, an experiment where she went to some appointments on her own and to some appointments she took her partner um, and she said he literally just sat there, looked at his shoes the entire time, didn't say a word. But she said the dynamic was totally different um, just by having him in the room. Wow, um, that is ridiculous. <laughs> depressing. Oh, depressing. I never heard of it. Men just have to sit there and they get better treatment. That's so annoying. <laughs> 
Hey, we are going to pause the episode here. This was one of our favorite interviews, so we didn't want to cut a second out of it. To make sure you're not listening for hours on end, we decided to make it a two-parter. So make sure you tune in next Wednesday for the second half of this interview with the incredible Sarah Graham. Or even better, make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss it. Catch you then. Bye. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.